So this is a psalm of two halves, really. Uh, the people of Israel, um, and by extension, us, were given two sets of instructions under the big umbrella of the one directive, praise the Lord. But before we dive into any of that, please join me as I pray and ask our great God to grant us wisdom and understanding as we seek to delve into and apply his word. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, we humbly come before you now as your people in this little city of Bendigo, seeking to hear what you are trying to say. Your words from so long ago have been preserved for us today. So we ask that you would help us to see their relevance, to see their meaning, and see how they apply to us today. Please quiet our hearts and minds so that we can focus on you and your word. And please give me the words to say that will fully and properly speak your message and give praise and glory to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's get into it. To begin with, a little bit of context. This is the second last psalm recorded here, and it fits in with a bit of a series over the uh, to finish off the book. Psalm 146 through to 150 are often referred to as the Hallel Psalms um, because they all start and end with the same word, Hallelujah. And if you were paying attention to the kids' talk before, you'd know that hallelujah means praise the Lord. And so what we finish this book of Psalms with is a lot of encouragement and joyfulness. We're being encouraged to praise the Lord, being given a great many reasons why. We can see examples of this from Psalm 146 onwards. If you just actually flick back a couple of pages to Psalm 146... Uh, we see uh, in there uh, a bunch of reasons to praise the Lord. If we look specifically verses 5 to 9, it says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, the Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. So that was Psalm 146. In Psalm 147, we see more reasons, and these are bound up in God's divinity, all of the things the Lord has done and all of the things he can do. If we look there, Psalm 147, verse 4, he determines the number of stars and gives to all of them their names. Verse 8, he covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares the rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. Then even skip ahead a little bit more, verse 14, he makes peace in your borders he fills you with the finest of the wheat. Then we get to Psalm 148, and we see that it is not just people, but everything across creation is called to praise God. We see in verse 3, 
Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Then we see in verse 7 to 12, Praise the Lord of the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars. Beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth. Young men and maidens together, old men and children. Everything, everybody has been called to praise the Lord. And then we see in Psalm 150, we are greeted with the constant refrain of praise him. Every single line starts with the command to praise him. We also see in there the biblical justification for a drum kit, uh, but we'll get to that later. But what we see here in these last five Psalms are works of praise. They are poems written for the specific purpose of helping the people of Israel praise their God. Which then makes Psalm 149 a bit of a jarring note. It's just a bit off-key almost. In the midst of all this beautiful praise. And then you read through it, and you might have noticed this as well. It just felt different, off almost. But we will get to that first. We're going to start off by looking at what it is to praise God. And our opening line, verse 1, gives us this direction. We see in the verses following that a drive and a push to make that happen. So, verse 1, Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. God loves when people can find new ways to show and share how they love him. And when they can put together a, a new melody or find a secret chord, God loves that. And he loves it when we all do it together. We see here a reason to sing in church where we all gather and with one voice praise God. Of course, over the last couple of years, there have been circumstances vastly out of our control that have made it legally impossible to meet together in this building or even in our own homes. I'm not about to get into the politics or legality of that. Instead, I want to use it as an encouragement. Listening here in person, brilliant. Listening on the live stream, brilliant. But we can all meet together now. How great is that? We can come to church and be surrounded by people to rock up into the car park and see all of those cars outside, to gather in the cafe down the back, share a coffee or a hot chockey, some morning tea with people you haven't been able to see in months it has been such a joy and a delight to see people again. And I say this knowing that there are people who are anxious being in large groups for health reasons, or there are some of you at home there who can't make it because of children and their needs, and there are a whole bunch of reasons that I haven't mentioned for people not wanting to be here. 
and I'm not here to judge that. I'm not the attendance police. And I'm definitely not encouraging people to go against their conscience or conviction. But if you are staying home or away for any other reason, I invite and encourage you, come back to Reforming House. God loves it when we all get amongst it. Because being a Christian isn't an individual pursuit. When you are saved, you become part of a body, and it is a beautiful bond that we share. So when we come together and praise our God using the same words, singing the same song, it's music to my ears. And we see here that it's music to God's as well. In verse 2, we see another encouragement for praise and joy. It says, Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Now some of you out there might be thinking, don't see any direct reference to us as a modern church here since we technically aren't Israelites. Uh, there may be some people here with Jewish heritage. I know that there are at least two people here. And we could get technical and say, well, we're not necessarily children of Zion. But we also know and understand that we read the Old Testament in light of the New. Scripture interprets Scripture. And so we know that this can apply to us. You see, Zion was a hill in what was the oldest part of Jerusalem. It was a place where God gathered his people. And we saw and see through the Gospels that the Gospel of God went out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. The people of God expanded and the bar for entry into that group changed. So since we have given our lives to God, we are called the people of God. Our earthly birth doesn't matter. Where you were born, who you were born to, doesn't matter. Because you have been born again. This makes you children of Zion who can rejoice in their king. And now we come to the fun part, the method of praise. For those of you who don't know, I love music. It is one of the biggest joys in my life. comes after my family, of course, but I love music. Every time I'm in the car, music. Mowing the lawn, music. Looking at the dog, music. It is radio, Spotify, not fast, music. I love it so much. So you can imagine the sort of joy that I get from these next couple of verses where it says, Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. Now, one thing I'll admit that doesn't thrill me is the first line, dancing. Just ask my wife, Michelle, and she will tell you that I have uh, what she politely calls a very unique dancing style. Uh, I have a lot of fun, uh, but I've been informed that I do dance differently. Um, but lucky for you, it's not something that I'm going to highlight and show you today, but if we're ever at a wedding together, uh, you might see it. But what we can see here in the text is that dancing is a biblical way of praising God. 
The point of the start of this verse is to say, in a very straightforward way, that God loves him when we praise him with our dance. He wants us to praise him using our skills, our passion, our movement, our entire body. He doesn't just desire the three standard positions of hands in pockets, or hands by side, or hands on the chair in front. So sway along to the songs here at church. Tap your feet along to the beat. Jump, you know, bounce around in your living room. Jump in the mosh pit at a For King and Country gig. Dancing is a brilliant way of praising God. We see it in Psalm 150 and we see it here as well that the drums and the guitar have a place in the worship of God because they are just updated and tweaked versions of what is being described in this verse. So learn how to play the old hymns. Practice the latest songs from Mercy Me. Use your hands, your fingers, your breath, your sticks to play those instruments to the praise of God. He wants you to dance if you want to dance. He wants you to play your instruments if you can play your instruments. He wants you to sing loudly and joyfully even if you can't sing. We have been given the amazing gift of music and we are being encouraged here by God to use that to praise him. For as we take pleasure in the Lord, so it says in verse 4, he takes pleasure in us. Let's look at that now. Verse 4, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Now, if it isn't already obvious, God likes us. And if that's not the understatement of the year, God doesn't just like us, he loves us. He takes pleasure in us. He finds pleasure and joy in being with his people. You could read the whole Bible cover to cover, and each step of the way you would find the unrelenting love of God. Through the story of his people, we see God's salvation plan for his people. From Genesis through to Revelation, the beginning to the end. We know that he saves his people Israel throughout their history. From conquest, slavery, floods, wars, stupidity, insolence. And all of this is just a shadow of things to come a shadow of the true and everlasting salvation that is on its way. So what happens to that salvation, what happens with it? God adorns us with it. We who are those humble people who call him king, we are adorned as with a crown of gold and precious jewels, and that beautiful thing that is placed on our head is salvation the salvation that he planned for us and carried out through the death and resurrection of Jesus that has been foretold here in the Psalms. Friends, we have been saved from Satan's sin and death by God. And he has given us that salvation to hold on to and wear into eternity. And so we praise him in the assembly gathered here today and in our homes as we lay down to sleep, as we see in verse 5, 
Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. See, our worship isn't only a com- isn't only a communal thing. It's also a personal thing. It's something that we do here this morning, but it is also something that you can do in your beds tonight. I read that the reason the people of Israel praised in their beds is because there were not enough waking hours in the day to praise God for all that he has done. That the only way to fully do him justice is to praise him from our first waking moment to our final sleepy thoughts, sun up to sundown. Praise and glorify our Lord and God. Now I will be the first to admit that I don't always do this and I definitely don't always do it well. I do not always begin my mornings with a word of praise, especially not before the morning coffee. And I don't drift off to sleep with songs of joy floating through my mind. And the whole space in between those two moments, that's even more difficult. But this is our encouragement and our challenge. We are the people of the risen King. We are the people crowned with salvation. We all have struggles and challenges in our lives, some momentary and some deep and painful. But we are also all destined to a perfect life in heaven if we trust in and believe in the saving work of Jesus. And so I encourage you to live your days full of praise and worship. I encourage you to wake up, and I'm encouraging myself in this as well because I know that I need it. Seize the opportunity to exalt God in glory. And this is not an easy task by any means except through the spirit that we have been given. That is the only way that we can properly do this. And it is so worthwhile. Taking each moment to reflect on the great gifts of God, it can make your day so much better. It can turn those moments of struggle around. Now, I'm not promising perfection nor endless joy on this earth, but a way of making the time till Jesus returns a little better. This leads us on to our next set of verses. We've praised God here at church. We've praised him at home in our beds. And the people of God are encouraged to have the high praises of God in our throats and a sword in our hands. It says that right here in verse 6 to 9. It says, Let the high praises of God be in their throats and a two-edged sword in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honour for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Now how's that for a bit of biblical whiplash? This is the jarring note that I mentioned earlier. Praise, war, songs, weapons. But what does this mean? What conclusions conclusions should we draw from this in this present age 
from this violent imagery. To guide us, we're going to look at some historical perspectives and commentary, and then finally I will give my thoughts. According to the Kiel and Delish Old Testament commentary from 1866 or thereabouts, this psalm has been used to incite not one, but two wars. The 30-year religious war and the war of the peasants. Which is to say that quite clearly, this psalm and these verses are to be taken very seriously and handled very carefully because they have been proven to cause death. These verses are definitely violent, but they are not now a call to war. It might be our natural inclination to seek vengeance, to right any wrongs under our own power. But this, but that is not what is called for, neither here in person or on the internet or any other sort of realm where you might find yourself wanting to seek vengeance and punish. We want to punish those who have hurt us. We want to execute judgment. We want to do all of these things. But that is not our role here. Let's look at what some commentators think. Let's get some more perspective on this. William Nickel contends that there is a literal meaning here. And we do see that historically. The people of Israel were not peaceful, calm people who went out of their way to avoid a physical fight. No, they fought real wars and battles. They took kings in chains. They wiped out nations of people as they were instructed by God. Matthew Henry, another commentator, follows a similar line. Some of God's people were appointed to execute vengeance in the name of the Lord. Think people like Gideon or Samson or any other great warriors in the Bible. But they generally didn't do it for personal revenge. Instead, they followed the directions of God. But the application then when it was first written, is not the same as the application now. What we instead do now is read this passage through the lens of Christ. We read and understand everything through his preaching and his teaching. And when we do that, we see the passage become less literal, but only in so much as we don't put people in handcuffs for their disbelief. Now, for those of you who know me and have talked with me for any length of time, even only a short amount, I have no doubt that you have heard me say some pretty ridiculous things. In fact, one of the first sermons I gave, actually, uh, to Rochester Presbyterian, um, I used an illustration of giving your life for a politician. Um, it might have been John Howard or Julie Gillard. I can't exactly remember um, and I'm also not about to start discussing my personal politics up here, being there, done that, learned my lesson. All of this to say is that the Bible and these verses here are not the, they're not a, a basis 
for a hostile takeover or takedown. Of course, you may disagree with our leaders, and that is completely all right. But this passage doesn't give you the platform to take down our Prime Minister or our Premier for their handling or mishandling of any given situation. You have the right to say what you're thinking. But we are not God's military here on earth. We are not called to go and grab our weapons and physically defend ourselves from the aggression of rulers or people of our country, nor are we called to band together and fight the leaders and people of another country in the name of God. If you have disagreed with anything that I've said this morning, more than happy to talk to you about that later. I'll be down the front uh, in the cafe area, more than happy to hear your thoughts on this passage as well. But as we read and see the directions of vengeance and punishment, we see talk of chains and fetters. As Cameron talked about two weeks ago, we also see judgment, just judgment. But we are not, as he said, the judges. God is. We see our place in this now, in this modern age, We don't see instructions to fight with fists or swords or guns. Instead, we fight armed with the word of God. That is why I had that cross-reference passage from Revelation. There's a lot to be said about that. There is a vastly deep passage. could be a sermon all of its own. But this is not the time for that. Instead, I want to draw out two specific moments from that passage. In verse 12, we see the phrase, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And in verse 16, we see, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. In these instances, we see that the sword is not literal, but figurative. It's the sword of the spirit, the weapon of our words. You see, we execute judgment of ideas by speaking the truth in love. We share the knowledge that a just punishment is coming to the people of the world. The kings and nobles need to know that their reign is only earthly and that a true king is coming soon. Mind you, everyone else needs to hear that too. This is a call to do battle in in this passage, but not in a physical sense, but in an evangelical sense. You see, friends, Jesus is coming back. We don't know the day or the hour, but we do know that it is happening. We also know two other things, the outcome for those who are in and the outcome for those who are out. And so we do fight. We are constantly battling with the plans of Satan. We're fighting in our schools, in our homes, our friendships, our jobs, in all aspects of our lives that the proper respect and honour be given to our God. And we fight in all different types of ways, be it prayer 
or in our conversations or in our actions or our attitudes. But we fight knowing that God is giving us the time to do so. We fight fervently knowing that the battle will end soon. It might be five minutes, five hours, five decades. To use a a slightly different fighting analogy, it's like a boxing match. The people in the ring don't know how much time is left. They know that the, the fight will last its five minutes or so, but there isn't a big clock up on the wall counting them down. Instead, they have their team yelling from the corner, Um, giving them encouragement, giving them instruction, letting them know that time is running out. We don't know when the bell will ring to end this bout. That is why we praise day in and day out, because we're in a fight. But even though the fight is still going, the victory is already won. Jesus has won, and he will come one day very soon to deliver the judgment written. For those who don't believe, they will be judged, and they will face the punishment for their sins. There will be a trial, and there will be a sentence. But for those who do believe, there will be no trial, there will be no judgment, They won't receive a sentence. They will receive honour. And for that I say hallelujah. Praise be to God. Pray with me. Our heavenly Lord and King, we thank you and praise you for who you are and all that you have done for us. You have brought us into your family, into your kingdom, and we praise and glorify you for that. We ask that as we leave this place soon and venture out into the hostile world, that you would guide us and equip us for the fight ahead, not with swords, but with words, your words, so that we can speak the truth in love. Please use us for your good and for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.